It's easy to say that, oh, human sacrifice is horrible, don't do it completely. But with Grindr Trap, though, is it easier to accept because there are animals? Hello everyone, welcome to Life Lilith by Cham Radio, a weekly literature podcast airing every Sunday. I'm Ha Chang and this is my co-host, Kim. So the topic of today is tradition. Kim, why are we veering towards tradition today? So, of course, tradition is an extremely integral part of everyone and every culture's identity. However, with new findings, new logics, new understanding nowadays, I do think that Sometimes we have to consider and re-evaluate our traditions to see even if it is important as a part of our identity, should it belong to history or should it still remain. So I'm going to start our discussion with an extract from Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. The original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was represented by the black box. There was a story that the present box had been made with some pieces of the box that had preceded it the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year, after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without anything being done. The black box grew shabbier each year. By now, it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood colour, and in some places faded or stained. The people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions. Most of them were quiet, wetting their lips, not looking around. Then Mr. Summers raised one hand high and said, Adams. A man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward. Hi, Steve, Mrs. Summers said, and Mr. Adams said, Hi, Joe. They grinned at one another humorously and nervously. Then Mr. Adams reached into the black box and took out a folded paper. He held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd, where he stood a little apart from his family, not looking down at his hand. They do say, Mr. Adams said to old man Warner, who stood next to him, that over in the North Village they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old man Warner snorted, pack of crazy fools he said, listening to the young folks. Nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to living in caves. Nobody will work anymore. Lived that way for a while. Used to be a saying about lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chicken wheat and acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added pelutantly. Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. Nothing but trouble in that. Old man Warner said stoutly, pack of young fools. Martin, and Bobby Martin watched his father go forward, overdyke Percy. I wish they'd hurry, Mrs Dunbar said to her oldest son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run till dad, Mrs Dunbar said. 
Mrs. Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called Warner. 77th year I'd been in the lottery, old man Warner said as he went through the crowd. 77th time. Watson, the tall boy came awkwardly through a crowd. Someone said, don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summers said, take your time, son. All right, fellows, for a minute, no one moved, and then all the slips of paper were open. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saying, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, It's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. Go tell your father, Mrs. Dunbar said to her oldest son. People began to look around to see Hutchinson's. Bill Hutchinson was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchinson shouted to Mr. Summers, You didn't give him enough time to take any paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Mrs. Delacroix called, and Mrs. Graves said all of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Don and Eva, Mrs. Hutchinson yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with their husband's families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You knew that as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe, Bill Hutchinson said regretfully. My daughter draws with her husband's family. That's only fair. I've got no other family except the kids. Then, as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you. Mr. Summers said in explanation, and as far as drawing for household is concerned, there's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchinson said. How many kids, Bill? Three, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Bill, Junior and Nancy, little Dave and Tessie and me. All right then, Harry, you got their tickets back. Mr. Graves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box then, Mr. Summers directed. Take Bill's and put it in. I think we ought to start over, Mrs. Hutchinson said as quietly as she could. I tell you, it wasn't fair. You didn't give enough time to choose. Everybody saw that. Ready, Bill? Mrs. Summer asked, and Bill Hutchinson, with one quick glance around his wife and children, nodded. Remember, take the slips and keep them folded until each person has taken one. Harry, you help little Dave. Take the paper of the box, Davy, Mrs. Summers said. Davy put his hand in the box and laughed. Take just one paper, Mrs. Summers said. Harry, you hold it for him. Mr. Graves took the child's hand and removed the folded paper from the tight fist and held it while little Dave stood next to him and looked up at him wonderingly. Nancy next. So, do you make out what just happened? I try to follow, but it's a lot of dialogues. There's a lot of dialogues, and it's hard to follow. But I think there's something that I remember distinctively from your reading, um, the description of the box. Something about they have been doing this for 77 years, and the box is no longer black. But they keep doing it anyway. And apparently there are two sides of the debate. Someone says, well, you've got to get rid of this. Someone say this has been going on forever. That's why we we still have to do it. And I think there's a really interesting complaint. Somebody say that people ain't the way they were mm. before. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the way that Shirley Jackson wrote this, it has it is packed with dialogues and packed with characters, mainly to evoke this kind of crowded feeling of everyone's like trying to chime in. And it has been going longer than seventy-seven years because the old man who is seventy-seven has 
survive this ritual for 77 years and he is the one who's saying it's crazy how people want to get rid of this tradition because you know lottery in june august 4th corn something like that but they were talking about how in the north people are starting to give up this tradition it's something that they do every year it is a lottery and essentially it is human sacrifice so it very much mimics the ancient athens way of like having a scapegoat person and they're often ritualistically this is contested but some says that they are stoned to death symbolically chase that evil away by attacking this one person they are supposedly purging all the evil that permeated the city and in a way this is the same it is a really short story and we didn't realize at first like what is this where is this tradition but you just know that it started with a very warm festival like kind of atmosphere but then as we carry on the story we realize just how tense everyone is constantly everyone's like hushing around and they try to keep a straight face they try to say like oh go on go do it and they wish it would be over soon it is an absolutely inhumane kind of ritual but they just accept it as supposedly a part of their everyday life even though there seems to be no sort of benefits to it in the end it was everyone took the same chance and once they pick someone some people get really sadistic like picking a stone so large and yeah and it has been going on for so long the thing with the box is that it's so old people don't even know why they're doing this anymore they're just doing it because mm-hmm. of tradition and the reason why i brought this up today is definitely because of a very topical issue the most i've been thinking a lot about is the recent grinder trap festival in faroe islands where the biggest pot of dolphins recorded in history has been killed so for those who don't know it is a tradition in faroe islands to kill whales and dolphins and apparently it just happens spontaneously when anyone spot a pot of dolphins and uh, they would herd it to the shore the dolphins and whales would be stranded and then they would cut the neck of them it's completely sanctioned by the government and people of faroe islands argue that it is such an important part of their identity and also because historically this was a sustainable way of farming and hunting not farming but of hunting and eating animal the scale of this pot this year was over 1400 it was all killed in one day that it actually led to violent reaction from global communities and even the faroe government had to say that they will try to reconsider this a couple of days after another 52 dolphins was killed in faroe islands almost as a reaction to the fact that the government said that they will reconsider the reason why i chose the lottery is because it makes you realize how much weight a tradition can bear it's easy to say that oh human sacrifice is horrible don't do it completely but with grinder trap though is it easier to accept because there are animals i'm i'm not sure i mean i Of course I'm treading on thin lines here because you could definitely argue that farming of animal is very much similar. Mm, so maybe I am holding a double standards right here. I mean I I totally agree this is a very hard question to answer. Taking us as example like in Vietnam we have a lot of weird traditions like sacrifices. I think a lot of culture would do sacrifices in order to 
um, ask for blessings from from gods and goddesses. So back in the day, we used to not we. I think in in China, they used to sacrifice a virgin mm-hmm. every year in order to ask for blessings from from the god of uh, rivers and, and mountains. We no longer do this anymore. But like for example, every month we will have to kill a chicken. Even though we don't fancy eating boiled chicken at all, we still have to do that. Like in every celebrations, there mm. will always have to be that you know boiled chicken. Mm. Nobody likes it. Nobody eats it. It still have to be there. So yes, I think when you talk about tradition and you talk about human identity, it's really hard to say that one should discard it mm. or not because again, it's not like the people within the community are voicing their concerns, but people. Out of the community of voicing their concern, and there will be problems like you are an outsider. You don't have any right to judge. This is our identity. You are ripping off our culture, etc. Yeah, certainly. And I suppose with things like virgin sacrifice in China, you know, because nowadays China no longer relies on gods to help with their agricultural. Advancement, they have, they can take control of agriculture. So that's why they no longer needs these kind of um, sacrifices anymore. And we see that in history, many many rituals are slowly shaved off until it becomes what remains of it are just certain symbols, like mere symbols. But yeah, for example, in our culture, I mean, I always find it funny how we release fish like carp or little goldfishes into a river when like they don't go down, and I'm just like, you are capturing fish away from the sea just to ritualistically release it back in. But then it does say something when you when you said, "Who are we to judge a human identity?" It really says something about how much power we give ourselves, right? Mm. Because The people of the Faroe Island are not dolphins, and they're not whales. They don't belong to the whales or dolphins community. Mm-hmm. In Shirley Jackson's story, is like everyone within that community takes a chance, right? But here, you know, they are they are invading another community and forcing them to be their sacrifice creatures. Of course, we do this as well to chicken, the chicken that we boil every single festival. It really says. Just how much we give power to ourselves in terms of taking control of nature and the earth, right? Yeah, and I do wonder. I know about this Faroe Island festival a long time ago, and there have been concerns years after years about how many whales and dolphins they're killing off every year. Given that the number of whales and dolphins in the ocean in the wild are decreasing very drastically we need them to sustain our marine ecology etc etc and yeah I, i just keep wondering too like why do they keep on doing that and and most of the time it's the man who will go out and who will kill the animal very very um violently and brutally in order to exert the power like If I'm not mistaken, I think that boys, when they reach a certain age, it's kind of like a rite of passage, mm-hmm. the ritual that they need to kill off a whale or a dolphin in order to socially become a man. I mean, I personally only know of, of this festival recently, a couple of days ago, and I also learned that yeah, apparently in Taiji in in Japan, there's also the same kind of festival. But it does say something because they say that it is. 
sustainable way of like maintaining the food source but now we don't rely on this anymore to maintain the food sources so the action that is still available is completely symbolic and i think you're very much right about identity of seafarers being able to tame the most monstrous of of the sea even though dolphins aren't considered the most monstrous of the sea i know that they said that the way that they kill the animals it happens in splits of seconds but that's just what they say they're still lying on the seashore suffocating to death whilst waiting to be killed of course there's always the old man in the sea kind of narrative and the paintings yeah the old japanese style print where it's just Mm -hmm. like man fighting against a whale i think there's something very romantic it's definitely romanticized by us about like being able to conquer the beasts of the ocean yeah, it's definitely very sad, especially given that scientists are trying so hard to demystify the romanticism sentiment that surrounds these kind of animals. They're actually very benign, very gentle, and they actually give a lot to the health of the ocean. So talking about questioning old traditions, I'm bringing to the table a very famous poem by Robus Frost. So I'm going to read Mending Wall. Mending Wall. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen ground swell under it, and spills the upper boulders in the sun, and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I have come after them and made repair, where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding. To please the yelping dogs, the gaps, I mean. No one has seen them made or heard them made, but at spring mending time we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go, to each the boulders that have fallen to each, and some are loaves and some so nearly bowls, we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh. Just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side. It comes to little more. There where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me and I wonder if I could put a notion in his hats. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I asked to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say elves to him, but it's not elves exactly, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there, bringing a stone grabs firmly by the top in his hand, like an old stone savage arm. He moves in darkness as it seems to me, not of woods only and the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well. He says again, good fences make good neighbors. So what do you think? I think it is really interesting, you know, the idea, the questioning of like, why, what are we walling in or walling out, especially that phrase. 
But the answer to that is constantly good fences make good neighbors. That sentiment is so ironic as well because you're kind of like, if you fence them out, how do you know your neighbor to ensure that they're good neighbors? But especially, once again, I'm coming back to what are we walling in as well as what are we walling out? Why the need for a barrier? Good. <laughs> yeah, I also think that the repetition of good fences make good neighbors. That is the only answer that he can give. Just because this is tradition, just because my father did it, that's why I did it. Maybe back then they have cows. Now they don't have cows anymore. He's old pine, I'm apple orchard. It's like there's not even a single reason why we need to build a wall. And the repetition of the sentence, something there is that doesn't love a wall is also interesting too. Because at the beginning of the poem, the poet describes that's something it sends the frozen grouse swell under it spills the upper boulders in the sun make gaps even two can pass abreast so it's like it's not just him but nature is also trying to give the message that it's not loving a wall anymore like it's all against nature but the neighbor he's so insistent and he's so persistent in saying that that's the only reason that i have here it's because of tradition. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like some people in the village as well, they question it for sure, but they continue to do it because there is an element of fear, whether it's a fear of a higher force attacking them, with fear of the neighbor not being good anymore, they're not walled out, or simply is it a question of, you know, losing tradition? Would it lose yourself and your mm. culture as well? Would it lose who you are? I think at the moment, that is kind of the only reason that the Faroe Islanders, uh, the whale hunters, are saying. Because there's no other legitimate reason except that it is a part of our culture. And also, they say that these animals are not considered endangered species. You know, who to know? You know, you just killed 1,400 animals. Like, you can't say that it didn't make a dent in the population of yeah. dolphins. <laughs> It wouldn't make a dent in, in human population. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to reread this poem um, during our discussion of this topic because most of the time, this poem is read in the context of politics, mm. like yeah. immigration, building a wall, especially with yeah. Trump administration. And now that we look at it in this light, it feels personal to me actually because there are a lot of custom like the boiled chicken mm. i keep asking my my parents my grandparents like why do we need this nobody's eating it it's not even good it's hard to make it good actually and all of the time everything that i receive which is like what well, is tradition that's that we have to keep it mm. if we just do away with all these traditions what are we left mm. yeah and um, even my mom and dad, like my dad at the moment, because uh, the last couple of years, there's a lot of uh, passage in my family. So my parents have been thinking a lot about mortality <laughs> and the time that they have left. And my dad recently made a, um, a book about um, the family tree lineage, talking about like life, everything of everyone in our family for a couple of generations. And in the end, there's a section written out all the prayers that we would need to say as in like a little guide mm -hmm. for us to how to do all of these things and my dad was being meticulous for sure because he himself is not a highly religious man i think he sensed that 
our generation, there's a lot of skepticism and there's a lot of questioning of certain traditions. So he put it in there just so we can, you know, carry on with our lives, not having to remember all of these things. But there is a guide for us, like whenever we need to, we need to look at it. Um, we could have it. It's both for convenience, but also there's some sort of like a sense of fear of of after he's passed away, he's worried that us, the children, would not be able to uphold all of these tradition. So yeah, in Vietnamese language, there's an idiom called Có thơ, có thiêng, có kiêng, có lành, meaning that it's better to worship and it's better to follow rituals and traditions just for avoiding risk, right? Because like, you know, there are a lot of spirits floating around. You never know if you don't treat them well and they will take revenge on you, you know, something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I totally understand that that sentiment that that your your father is having because I mean even with my parents, I still remember distinctively one time we went to a, f- a funeral in the city, and not long after that we went to a funeral in the countryside. And there's a lot of difference between the way they do funerals, the way they carry out different kinds of rituals you have to to do in a funeral, and they feel like, oh my God, it's so much easier in the city. Everything is so simple, so straightforward, and everything is clean cut. You know, you don't have to just drag about whole day doing unnecessary rituals. And I think my parents are feeling that, you know, within themselves, that there are certain traditions that you can just do away with because it's just symbolic. It's just not sincere. For example, in the countryside when your parents pass away how to say when you're seeing them off to the gravestone you have to cry very very loud you have to just wail and so that the village will will hear because they think that if you don't shout out and if you are not loud it means that your parents cannot hear it Mm. and they won't be um, consoled when they are being led to the grave I totally understand that, but at the same time, like nobody can cry all day like that, you know, physically. And I know that the people who are crying are just fake crying. And it feels very weird being in that situation because you are not being sincere, but also you have to follow traditions. Yeah. I think, of course, the funerals is difficult because I remember my grandma's funeral recently. It felt very strange to me because the whole funeral felt like a blur. It does feel like, and I feel a bit sorry for my uncles and my mum and my aunt because they're going through something that is so heartbreaking for them. But, but instead of mourning, they have to run around making sure the ritual's running smoothly, mm. you know, whereas like you can see it like they are in so much pain. The wailing, I think it definitely did come from their heart as well. They are wailing because it made me cry seeing the picture of my grandma on the altar like that definitely broke my heart so i definitely think that when my mom started wailing it it was real but yeah like for the rest of the day i would just say that they should just be resting yeah i totally feel about that too like weddings and funeral it's I feel like it should be more personal. It should be more about the people who are actually directly engaged in that activity rather than just guests, you know, serving them. But then it is very much the quote-unquote Asian hospitality, though. We are such communal creatures that we're always one for all 
it's said of all for one. Yeah. <laughs> what is all for one? But one definitely has to be for all, so. Yeah. It has pros and cons of itself, yeah. So yeah, I think that has been a very interesting conversation that we're having now. Um, thank you all for listening, and please look forward to our next episode where we will invite another guest. Thank you. See you next time.